You are listening to an artist interview from Chirp Radio. You can find more interviews at chirpradio.org slash podcast. You gotta understand something here. This music is the glue of the world. It holds it all together. Without this, life would be meaningless. Now this is serious business here, man. Putting on a great show is the most important thing you can do. One great rock show can change the world. This is Nick, and you are listening to a Trip Radio artist interview. I'm on the line with Jim Irigatis and Greg Cott of Sound Opinions, a great Chicago-based podcast about music, offering plenty of opinions on that subject, as well as helpful and insightful interviews. How are the two of you doing today? All right. I don't. Good. I don't know if we get cold artists all that often, Greg. <laughs> Thanks for inviting us. Uh, Sound Opinions has been kind of an institution in Chicago for a while, and I just want to rewind back to the beginning and get it straight from the source how it all started. What are the origins of the Sound Opinions podcast? Well, it's probably even longer than you think. Way back in the early 90s, 91, 92, I had done a couple of guest slots on uh, Eddie Schwartz's show on The Loop when he was in the middle of the night. Famous Chicago talk radio guy who was talking to cab drivers and nurses on the late shift in literally the middle of the night, midnight, one o'clock. He had left GN and young hip producer who now is a big name in radio wanted him to talk about like music made in that century. So I did a couple of slots and I said once, you know, it would be more fun if uh, if I had like uh, my buddy Bill Wyman, who was the critic at the Chicago Reader at that point, and we kind of do a Siskel and Ebert. And we did that. And, you know, it was a lot of fun arguing about music when nobody was listening in the middle of the night. Eventually, The Loop gave us uh, two hours on Sunday to do that. And eventually, after doing that for a while, Bill and I moved to Q101, which left an opening at The Loop. Yeah. yeah, the Loop hired me to do a show. I ended up working with Michael Harris, the Entertainment Weekly. What was it? Illinois Entertainer. Illinois Entertainer was the name of the publication that Michael was the editor-in-chief of. So we, we started pairing up and did our own version of a show. And then Jim left town to work at Rolling Stone for a bit, came back to Chicago in the late 90s. And both of us at that point were in a position where we could team up, collaborate. Jim called me and said, you want to do this show? Uh, you want to do this Iskal thing? So it kind of felt right. Let's do one about music. Uh, we approached uh, Norm Weiner, who was the guy who ran the shop. XRT. I, I thought that was the best fit for us at that point. For decades. Uh, WXRT would have been a nice fit. They stuck us on Tuesday nights, gave us two hours. Which, Ten to midnight. In a sense was um, a gift because even though it was an unforgiving slot, uh, we found an audience. They said our their ratings spiked uh, on Tuesdays at 10. They had never had talk, ever. And, and he gave us, um, to his credit, Norm has his reputation as being a very hands-on micromanager. He just kind of let us go for two hours. 
and we talked about bands that uh, XRT never played. Never played. We dissed bands that XRT did play, not all the time, but certainly we had the carte blanche to do just about whatever we wanted. And we kind of experimented in real time. This this would have been... Well, before we leave yeah. XRT, yeah. we had uh, a, a great uh, producer, Matt Spiegel, for most of the time. But we also had a great uh, assistant producer, Sean Campbell, who, right. who had this dream of starting this uh, Chicago independent radio project and, you know, was wasting three or four hours with us every <laughs> Tuesday night, answering the phones, uh, yeah. helping us out. We are forever grateful and have been fans of Sean ever since. Uh, I mean, Chirp is wonderful for so many reasons, but especially seeing that Sean and a dedicated core of volunteers realize that dream that they had for community yeah, uh, radio. And then uh, 2005, we moved over to public radio. And we had a very progressive approach from uh, Tori Malatia, who was then running the station. And he, op- he welcomed us with open arms. I mean, he had launched this yeah. American life. Yeah. He had a vision. And, you know, sometimes public radio, when it talks about music, can be annoyingly precious. But public radio respects the intelligence of its audience. And, you know, they were very open to us syndicating. They were very open to us, you know, having it available as a podcast in in subsequent years. That was Uh, a a stumbling block at XRT. A very backward looking approach. What happened with the break then? Yeah, well, you know, I mean the world ended after the pandemic shuts everything down in March 2020 and BEZ, you know, Tori Malatia had left. It was there were new people there. I think like a lot of media organizations in the pandemic, uh, financial panic, and they decided, well, we can't fund you and your staff anymore, but good luck, you own the show. Right. We always did. So uh, suddenly we're an independent production. And, you know, it's a point of pride that we have not lost any of the public radio stations. Our podcast numbers have only grown. Podcasting especially has opened up a new world for us. I mean, that's where the explosion is really occurring in our listenership. Our distributors said they don't care where you broadcast from. Keep doing the show. You're not going to miss a beat. And that, in fact, came true. We literally did not miss a week of the show. We seamlessly transitioned to an independent operation. And a lot of people called me up from our old place of work, said, how did you do that? I said, well, we're in Jim's living room now instead of at BEZ. And frankly, Jim's living room has better coffee than public Much radio better coffee. Had, so yeah. <laughs> I wanted to talk to you a little bit about your format because you've had a consistent format for so many years. Why is it you decided that this mix of reviews and interviews was going to be not only the best use of your talents, but then also the best way of introducing people to music? We're, we're newspaper guys at heart. We started out writing for newspapers. We're still, I still view myself as a newspaper guy. I think Jim too. Mm-hmm. We're, we're journalists. Uh, you're doing interviews with artists. You're not only reviewing them, so you're doing profile them, you're profiling behind the scenes people in the industry. You're covering the music as as business, as a cultural entity, as a newsmaking entity. That came naturally to us. We wanted a show that reflected that. Number one rule of being a journalist is to be curious always. Never lose that sense of like there's a big world out there. You wake up every day, you're going to learn something new. You know, and the format was always a magazine. I mean, we're voracious readers. Cream magazine, start with a letters section, go into the feature well, and end with reviews. And that's what we do. It's, it's a magazine idea. I wanted to ask you about what you think the role of a journalist in music is because I see a lot of discourse on social media about just how close it is to PR, essentially. A lot of it's not journalism. That's the problem. Uh, you know, we have a chronic failing a problem. <laughs> we we believe uh, music is everything. It, it certainly has been in our lives. And therefore, the forces 
but threaten it from outside. Ticketmaster, Live Nation, Lollapalooza, our part and parcel. I, I, I love, uh, you know, music too much to not defend it. And the idea that it's mere entertainment, you know, what are you getting upset about with, with these stories? Uh, this stuff affects all of us. You've got to realize all the challenges that maintaining a vibrant independent music scene are constantly up against. Uh, and, and in order to cover that adequately, you, you've got to be a, a good reporter, first and foremost. I, I, I wish there were more so-called journalists in music journalism because I don't see a lot of that sort of reporting. Um, it changes by increments. You there, know, I mean, I was furious when Pitchfork booked uh, R. Kelly to headline in 2013. And they eventually mm-hmm. apologized for that. Because where were they on reporting the devastation of the, the of so many young black lives by this monster? Uh, but, you know, they had a, a solid piece of investigative reporting about Arcade Fire, a band they created and hyped mm-hmm. right. to the heavens. Uh, it changes a little bit at a time, but not nearly enough. I mean, in the wake of people dying in Houston at Astroworld, many people still don't know that the force behind that was Live Nation. Well, as you pointed out, the things that happen that are not reported on do have real-world consequences. Like, Mm -hmm. sometimes people die. Sometimes people are traumatized for life. What sort of challenges have you had to overcome in pursuing the types of journalism that you feel like are important? Well, I mean, Jim can, you know, he's got 22-year history with one story. Uh, And I think one of the obstacles you run against is... uh, People don't want that story told. That's that's journalism. The story that people are trying to actively prevent you from telling. You know, uh, Steve Earle says the same thing uh, about songwriting. You know, it's, a, it's it's the untold story. It's a story, you know, giving a voice to something that isn't being, you know, expressed. So there, there's all sorts of pressures, uh, financial pressures applied to journalism now to conform and, and, and essentially be an extension of PR like you had mentioned, uh, which to me is really heinous. I mean, we're, we're starting to see some really good work in the digital realm in terms of reportage. I'm I'm impressed with that. And hopefully we're turning the corner. We're going to need that because, you know, the dailies aren't what they used to be. And, you know, God knows Facebook is more influential than any any media organization. The the problem is that it takes resources, though. You know, if if Chirp or the Reader were going to do hardcore investigative reporting that gets them hauled into court, you know, having media attorneys represent you is is bankrupting, and that's the problem of being able to have that sort of uh, resources. Uh, there's great, you know, I mean, look at what the Reader was exposing about Riot Fest. Uh, uh, you know, you just think it's an independent festival; it's another big corporation ripping off the community, according to many. Right, yeah, and I, I thought what was interesting about the reporting around Riot Fest is just their dealings with the city. You, you give money to the aldermen, you, you yeah. Right. And, and you don't give a care about the neighbors next door. I mean, that was so obvious. And that's the same uh, Lollapalooza. It's, it's the truth of, about Lollapalooza. It's the truth about Pitchfork. It's the truth about, you know, corporations are inherently evil. But whether you're talking about, you know, a major label or major concert promoter, that's why we have institutions like Chirp, yeah. Community Independent Radio, <laughs> you know, and us. I mean, I, you know, we have worked for the man at times, <laughs> but I don't think we've ever kowtowed to the man. No. Oh, 
Jim, Greg, this has been a great conversation. I really do appreciate uh, the two of you coming on and uh, chatting with me for Chirp. You bet. Thank you for your interest. Again, this has been Mick in conversation with Jim and Greg of Sound Opinions. Thanks for tuning in. This has been an artist interview from Chirp Radio. You can find this and more interviews at chirpradio.org slash podcasts.